I want to start off this morning, if you will indulge me, with a few words on the subject of original sin. Please don't everybody run out the door at the same time. Our topic for the month of May is creativity and creation. And last week, I shared a little bit of the Genesis story of creation in our time for children and talked about it a bit in the sermon. But as I've been prepping this week, I've realized there's another element of that story that sometimes we jump over here in our circles. But I think it's important to address it this morning as I dive into our topic. Here's what we know. In the myth, in the Hebrew Bible, God creates everything in a span of seven days. And at the end of each of those seven days, God declares what's been created to be good. God's creation is good. And then we have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God tells Adam and Eve, you can eat everything here in this garden except that tree. Don't eat that tree. And we can argue about whether or not that was a wise tactic or not. Uh, God's a new parent at this point in the story, so I'm willing to cut some slack there. Here's the thing about the wording in the original Hebrew. Yeah, I'm doing that again. Um, One, the word that we have in English Bibles as evil does not translate quite like that in the Hebrew. The word used there, ra, means more just bad, generally bad, harmful, something that causes misery maybe, but not evil. We got evil because when they translated into Latin, the word they used was molly, which is evil. Uh, And it's also how we got the idea that the fruit was an apple because it sounded a lot like the Latin word for apple in there as well. But what the original authors in their myth-making we're saying was bad misery. There's one interpretation that, said, that uh, talks about idioms in the Hebrew language, uh, and it frequently shows up when they talk about good and evil, when they talk about dark and light. It's coupled together as an idiom for meaning, meaning everything. So in one respect, it's the tree of the knowledge of everything. But that word knowledge has a few facets to it as well. And one of those is discernment, the ability to judge, the ability to tell one thing from another. And in eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge, human beings gained the ability, the godlike ability, to say what things are good and what things are bad, to name things. That's how God was creating in the story. He was naming things and calling them into being and labeling them good. And now humans took upon themselves that ability to name things good or bad. And this is where the original sin really comes in in this story. God has named all of creation good. And then humans in their audacity, take on the skill 
the ability to call what has been named good, bad. To separate things out. One interpretation is that the original sin was desiring to be like God and using that power to name parts of God's good creation as bad, harmful, rotten, miserable. And here's the thing about us humans, and I think we've all hung out with a few long enough to kind of get a sense of how we operate. Our ability to make discernments is very frequently clouded by our own prejudices. We're very good at, I like this, I don't like that, I hate this, I love this. We do it all the time. Some of those judgment calls we make are correct, and sometimes they're based just on an ick factor for us. And we know that it's a really short, fast trip in the human brain from, I don't like that, to that is bad for everybody. I don't like that, so it's a sin. I don't like pineapple on pizza, and then we quickly move to this dinner is an abomination unto my sight. <laughs> it's just how we work. And so the fruits of that original sin, at least in the mythology, as we might have inherited today, is this. We spend a lot of time, humans in the aggregate, mistaking our own predilections for a moral center. And then for some, claiming the voice of God, claiming to speak for God, to label things bad, to label people as they are bad, or as we've inherited the word through translation after translation, evil. The short version of the story is this. I did the long version first, I'm sorry. The short version is this. God built a giant table for creation with a place at it for all aspects of creation. And then as soon as humanity gets a chance, they start breaking the china and kicking people out. And this is the world we inherit. And I tell you all this to tell you this. Where the heck? Oh no, I didn't put the picture in. <laughs> I went to Drag Queen Story Hour yesterday. Who all was there? Who went? Anybody else besides me? Yes. Excellent. You would, um, it was amazing. It was awe-inspiring to be in there. It was at least 200 people. I stopped counting at 150, and I couldn't see half of the people behind the walls in the circle. Packed with people having a wonderful time 
with people just dancing and laughing and being silly. And that's, that's what it was all about. And that's what the stories that were being shared were all about. Love who you are. Live your life with joy. Accept the ways you are different from others and accept others' differences. And it's okay to dress up and play pretend and be silly every once in a while. As a 50-year-old man with his very own lightsaber, I heartily endorse this philosophy. But the lead-up to all of that yesterday, the lead-up, I think we know some of the story. Somebody lost their stuff when they realized that the book, if you're a drag queen and you know it, was on display in the children's library, and somebody made a move to have it banned, or at least not so publicly made prominent. And that person didn't show up for the actual library board meeting to either defend or speak for their point of view. And the library said, this is our policy and the book stays. And it got a little bit of attention. And so here we are now having a drag queen story hour with the very author of that book, somebody who happens to have also found, founded the drag queen, drag queen story hour. And as soon as that was announced, <laughs> Oh, there it is. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what I could see from up high. When the story was released, the drag, story, drag Queen Story Hour was coming out, uh, the comments sections online exploded. The, the torches and the pitchforks came out. People were up in arms and making their arguments for why this was, this was all bad. These people are sick and disordered. We shouldn't be showing them to children. These are pedophiles and groomers. They all have an agenda to recruit people to their way of thinking. And my favorite one of the week, liberals hate feminine women. Y'all, I think I could do about two solid hours just on every level of every way. This one is wrong all on its own, but I'll spare you. The commentary was bigoted, ill-informed, ignorant on a lot of levels, rife with logical fallacies, one of my favorite things to pick out, and full of bad faith arguments. And most of it was rooted in personal prejudice and distaste, distaste mistaken for a global sin in the minds of people, declaring loudly for all to see there is no place at the table for these people. I went yesterday to offer my support to the people who were attending and to the people who were putting it on to be there for one of our congregants who was putting her ass on the line to make this thing happen and be there. And I went all dressed up 
in my collar and my love all of everybody t-shirt, what I call my super suit, because I wanted to be visible. I wanted to be visible as a member of the clergy, as somebody in the religious community who is accepting and affirming of people as they are, to put another face on what we consider to be religion. And I went so that I could stand as a presence across the street from the protest. There was a scheduled prayer walk happening, sponsored by a local organization who I cannot name here at this time without violating the Johnson Amendment, but I'll give you a minute. For a prayer walk. There was neither prayer nor walking. I'm familiar enough with both topics to make that judgment call. And there were happily 12 people. 12 people versus 200 down below having a good old time. And if that is not a hopeful statistic there alone, I don't know what else is. And the 12 gave up about halfway through and went home. I've used the great heart at the center of all things metaphor quite a bit in the last several years. Hopefully you're not tired of hearing it from me. But the whole point of this ancient creation myth that I just made up is that the great heart wanted to know itself more fully, so it burst out into the universe, creating all of us, and the creation was good and handed us a mission to live life to our fullest, to observe everything that was good about life, and to come back and report on the progress for an eventual reunion back together as one. It's a great metaphor, if I do say so myself. It is rife with poetry, but even I will admit it's lacking a bit in any kind of practical instruction for any of us. There's an implicit imperative in there somewhere, but no list of thou shalt and thou shalt nots. And a lot of where my contemplative time and energy has gone in the last several months has been to that question. What is the imperative of the great heart at the center of all things? What is it we are being asked to do? What is the praxis that we can pick up that makes the vision possible, makes the rubber hit the road, tells us how to get our hands into the dirt and work? We've had all kinds of messages that we've shared over the years trying to convey some sense of what the imperative is. Whoever you are, whomever you love, wherever you are in your, your life's journey, you are welcome here. You are welcome here. And we welcome you with a love beyond belief. We don't just welcome you, but we cherish you. And that's the work, really. That points to it. 
creation has been broken by people who want to speak on behalf of God and name other people as bad, as sinful. And our job is to repair what has been broken, to invite the disinvited back into the table, to the place that rightly belongs to them, to love them and everyone without bounds. To call people back to their place at the table of creation. And still, none of this is an imperative. So, how are we doing this? What is the actual work that this message is calling us to do? Yesterday, for me, is one of the best moments of ministry that I've experienced in a few weeks. And it's because there was some interaction, even though it was just presence, something that happened between people who wanted to be seen and someone who was there to see them. I was there to be present and be seen. I was there to offer love and welcome. I was there, hopefully, to instill hope. And I get the sense from some that that's exactly what they needed in that moment. Every time we do a pride fest, every time we go to a protest like this, someone always sees me or us gathered together wearing our Unitarian paraphernalia and saying, oh, thank God you guys are here. We're there at least as the beacon of hope we proclaim ourselves to be. And what if we just did that all the time? What if it didn't take a community controversy to bring us out to be that visible support to others? What if we didn't have to do it just as a response to loud, prevalent hate in the community? What if that presence that message, that visibility was just our constant state of being. Sending out that presence, that love, that support, that solidarity, that hope constantly, endlessly. Broadcasting a message out into the community's consciousness without end, reinforced by our presence and our action in our community. How best to express that message. Now, I love the t metaphor, the table of creation and everybody having a place at it, but I also know that doesn't necessarily speak to everybody. It might not reach everyone. And over the years, I've tried to preach what I call the Unitarian Universalist gospel, which I list as you are loved and you are worthy of your place at the table of creation and we are inextricably bound together and because we are bound together like that, we cannot give up on one another. And I still believe that wholeheartedly. And it's also just four wordy bullet points. 
And we proclaim to the community that we practice a love beyond belief, which is also an amazing bit of poetry, and I think something we want to aspire to, but it's also very enigmatic. All of these are great articulations of the message and the mission that we are trying to serve together. But they're all pointing to something else, something so much more basic, some kind of primal need in the hearts of people. And that's what we need to express to, to try to get to hearts. So go back to that work of just presence, of being there and being seen and seeing others and what it does, what the impact of that is practically. Imagine you are one of the marginalized community and you are going to this event because it is reflecting who you are and there's a prayer walk happening outside the building. But then you see somebody who's on your side. You just see them even. And have that moment to realize somebody sees me. Somebody loves me unconditionally. Somebody in this community has my back. And what a blessing it is in the midst of all the turmoil and all the threat and all the hatred to have a moment to realize, to feel, and to know deeply that I am not alone. That's the message. That's the thing that speaks. If you've been told you don't belong, you are not alone. If you've been told that your very being is bad, possibly evil, you are not alone. Do you have doubts about, oh, I don't know, everything? You are not alone. Whatever you're going through, somebody around here has been through it too. You are not alone. Whoever you are, whomever you love, wherever you are in your life's journey, you are welcome here. You are not alone. There are plenty of people in this community and nationwide and around the world who prefer to hijack the voice of God or the spirit or the great heart and use it to name their personal prejudices as bad as evil, who create separation among people because they lack the imagination to be kind. And as a result, so many of us have been denied a place at the table of creation because of who we love, because of what we believe, because of how we vote, because of how we look, because of how we express ourselves, because we are who we are. 
there are people who want to shut the door on us. So do you want to reclaim your place at the table of creation? Do you want to be able to celebrate all of who you are down to the depths of your essence? You are not alone. That's the message. That's the work. That is the message that people are aching for, that primal need in the midst of isolating and divided times. Sometimes that's all somebody needs to hear. You are not alone. That's the message we need to proclaim on our front doors, in advertising, on Facebook, in everything we mail out, and in every action we do in the community. And in the way we invite our friends and our beloveds back to the table with us. That is the message going forward. Let this be the work of our hearts and our hands and our whole lives. Let this be the work of this congregation. Let us call back all who have been displaced from the table of creation. Even if it's those of us sitting here right now. And let me start it right here, now, today. I see you. I love you. You are not alone. There is room at the table for everyone. And may it be so for all of us.